You're listening to a podcast from DTB. Welcome to In This Issue for DTB, Volume 49, Number 7 for July 2011. I'm Alex Taylor, and I'm here today with David Fazakli, the DTB Deputy Editor. Hello. Hi. Uh, Ike Yanacha, the Editor for DTB. Hi. And Bryony Lovelock, the Production Editor. Hi. I'll kick off uh, talking about the editorial this month, which is about ADHD in adults. Uh, This is something you don't really hear about very often. David, could you tell us something about it? Uh, uh, Yes, and I think you're you're quite right. It isn't something you hear about terribly often. You hear about ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder in children, uh, well-recognised and managed. But this question that we raise in the editorial is what happens to children as they grow up and transfer possibly into adult services? What is there to, to help them through that tran- transition? Um, so we, we kind of ask the question in the, in the editorial as to whether services are in place and whether it's actually well recognised that this is, a, this is a problem. I don't know what, what, what you thought, Ike, about the, you know, this whole transition issue. Uh, yeah, it's, it's obviously crazy that the idea that um, a child gets to 18 and whatever um, medical complaint that they have suddenly disappears so uh, and ADHD is, is one example where that can be a complete nonsense a, a long-standing disorder um, which may be quite difficult to manage in, in childhood it doesn't go away suddenly in, in in adulthood for many people and you've got you've got children who have been taking uh, quite potent medicines for most of their their childhood suddenly needing somebody to look after them once they get to adulthood and possibly the use of those medicines gets more complex as they get older. Sure. Um, yeah, there's a whole raft of, of issues um, surrounding care for, for these people, and, and that's what the editorial tries to highlight, because clearly the first stage is, is recognising that there is a problem, and quite often that isn't the case. People just don't accept or know or, or indeed care that, that uh, some of these adults uh, require quite intensive um, care and monitoring. Is that what usually happens? That it just they just say it goes away with age. Is that quite common? Well, I mean, for some people, of course, like any other disorder, it may change with adulthood. But there isn't a magical cutoff that says that once no. people become adults, a disease which which has affected them through through most of their their childhood suddenly goes away. No. Uh, and certainly, there shouldn't be an assumption that that happens. No. And even if there was, there would be a gradual change, and people would would mature at different times and, and it would change at different times so you'd still need to manage people during the early stage of their adulthood even if you assumed it went away at some point but uh, you know, the question is you know, is it a long term problem? And presumably as an adult it would manifest more trying to work and go about normal life? Yeah I think that the issue is not necessarily the symptoms are different but the interpretation people put on them can be very different so an adult manifesting features of ADHD might be treated very differently from a child. Quite often, wrongly, uh, ADHD is, 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 is seen before it's recognised and diagnosed as just the child being over naughty and disruptive. It's unlikely that such a benign interpretation would be put on an adult manifesting the same symptoms. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. Should we move on to the DTB Select? And I thought, Ike, is there an article that you'd like to highlight this month? Um, take your pick, Alex. No, no, you tell me. <laughs> okay, well, one of the things that, that's that's worth highlighting is our 
old friend, the poly pill. Now, uh. um, it's a subject we've tackled before in DTB in, in, in fairly recent editorial. The poly pill is, is a concept uh, which says that it might be better for people if they took drugs to prevent cardiovascular disease as one medication, a combined medication consisting of, say, four or five different pills, such as aspirin, a beta blocker, etc., etc., uh, if they took that as one pill rather than as separate medications. And that sounds fine in theory, but um, to date there's, there's no evidence that uh, taking such things in, in combination actually works as well as taking the individual drugs. Um, uh, there's a bit, there'd be no long-term studies which prove that, they're, that the combined pill, the poly pill, would be as good as the individual medications taken separately. Um, and uh, in the, one of the select items this, this, uh, this month, we highlight uh, yet another study which, which makes the suggestion that you know, the concept of the poly pill has been proven because there's been a study which shows that a poly pill taken for a relatively short time can have what appear to be beneficial effects on 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 um, you know surrogate markers of of cardiovascular disease, but again it um, this, there remains a lack of data to show that that in terms of the things that really matter, i.e. things like heart attacks, strokes, and so on, that a poly pill is any better uh, than taking each medication separately. So. Um, it, it, <laughs> It remains an interesting concept, but one without evidence to, to fully support it, in our view. But the interesting thing I thought about this was that it was 12 weeks. Yeah. And it was only looking at, well, only looking, it was looking at blood pressure and cholesterol measurements. And then assuming that that mm. benefit will deliver the same health benefits. But, that, that but that's always a kind of assumption, or that's often been the kind of assumption in the, these kinds of studies. They're short-term studies looking at, as I say, surrogate markers, blood pressure, cholesterol, and so on, and, and making what is actually a huge leap of faith to say, well, actually, the, the short-term effects you, you see on those markers over a few weeks necessarily translates to a, a, a clinical benefit 5, 10, 15 years later. And what seemed particularly problematical with this one was that lots of people dropped out because of side effects from that fixed combination, um, which suggests, well, how reliable is the data mm. over that, that length of period if, if people can't even manage to take the poly pill? Mm. Controversial. Interesting. Well, yeah. It, but it will be back again, and uh, perhaps next time with more data. It doesn't go away, does it? No, no, no it doesn't. All right. How about you, David? What, what's one that you want to highlight this month? Uh, well, I, I the other chestnut that seems to be coming around with regularity at the moment is the, the calcium um, and risk of, of heart problems. It's something that's been bubbling around and reported in various journals that, that is there a problem with calcium supplementation causing um, myocardial infarctions? And again, we pick up on a, on a, a piece that's been uh, published that, that's earlier, um, there was a big piece of research in uh, a large group of, of women looking at the use of calcium and vitamin D and whether there was a, an association with, with heart problems, they found no, no underlying concerns. However, they reanalyzed the data on the basis that actually what they found was that lots of people were taking supplements anyway outside the study, and therefore this might have skewed the picture that they saw. So they reanalyzed the data, taking into account the fact that lots of women were already taking supplements. Um, and 
began to say, well, actually, maybe there is something in this that um, there is a slight increase in uh, in the risk of uh, of cardiovascular problems. Um, it's not clear-cut data. It's nothing, I think, that would change clinical practice radically at the moment. It's kind of a watch and wait. There seems to be something brewing around calcium and vitamin D. Set against that, the benefits that you get with calcium and vitamin D in terms of reduced fractures against this possibly emerging picture of uh, a potential cardiovascular problem. So it's kind of watch and wait. Nothing concrete yet, would you say? Well, I agree with you, uh, except that... Um, when it when we, I suppose we have to think about the conclusion you said that it shouldn't change clinical practice, which is clearly the correct one. The reality, though, is that these kind of stories get reported as you know calcium calcium kills you uh, in the in the lay media and sometimes in the trade media, um, and the reaction from individual uh, patients uh, who are taking calcium supplements might be, "I'm stopping taking this." Uh, and so it, it, it's, it's always a bit unsettling when you have this kind of observational data, which is very important. It's very important to, to, to look at it and for it to, to accumulate. But one just has to be a bit wary about the idea that actually it doesn't change practice because it might, mean to, it might lead to massive changes in, in unseen practice and self-practice that, that we're just never aware of. Quite. And I suppose the, the issue is, is yes, the unintended consequences of publication of this sort of data is that people will change what they what they do and how they perceive the drugs. Yeah. Whether the clinicians should be changing their practice in response to this yet is is the other issue. No, I, and as a, uh, as I said, I agree with you that that there isn't enough here to to suggest a, a radical change in, in in practice. However, from a from a com- sort of concordance adherence point of view, if people are not prepared to take these drugs there's no point prescribing them if, if their perception is that these are dangerous yeah then clinicians should clearly ask patients and establish early on whether they 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 really want to take these drugs before committing the prescription indeed mm. okay should we move on um these two to- two articles this month the first one being management of acute infective conjunctivitis yes uh infective conjunctivitis can be caused by bacteria and viruses and typically left to its own devices if that's possible will go away on its own uh, the issue is that it can be a an irritating condition for the for the person who's got it um, and uh, and therefore the temptation can be to try to treat it or relieve those symptoms because it's it's a, a nasty irritating uh, conditioned for a relatively short period of time. And do you think that's a doctor that wants to fix it, or is this the patient who you're talking well, I think about? It's more complicated than that, really. I think that that if if we were having this conversation maybe five years ago, uh, or, or possibly longer, there would be an assumption that if you knew or suspected that somebody had uh, bacterial conjunctivitis, you would just give them antibacterial eye drops to treat it. Uh, I don't, you know, there wouldn't have been there wouldn't have been much objection to that kind of suggestion. Um, what's happened in in the subsequent period, though, is, is more knowledge about the self-limiting nature of the condition, and also increasing worries about actually the benefit of using antibacterial eye drops in this in this suggest. You know, how much benefit does it actually give uh, to use them? 
Um, so the, the article explores those kind of issues and, and, and tries to offer people advice on on whether or when to use um, uh, antibacterials and other treatments indeed for, for conjunctivitis. And the other major change which we discuss is that these were prescription-only medicines for a long time, so you could only get them f- through your through your doctor. Um, they certainly made chlorophenicol available over the counter through community pharmacy a few years ago, so that's opened up a different supply mm. route and made it possible for patients to go and buy treatment. So it's it's focusing on again a slightly different uh, audience. So that if if you're uh, in the community pharmacy world, what is it you should know about these this treatment in order to be able to advise patients whether it's worth buying mm. buying the treatment? Um, as we say, the, is the benefits are marginal. Mm. You do get you possibly get some early early benefits of, of treatment, but then if you left it untreated, you would you would clear up generally anyway. So it's about li- giving people enough information so they can have an informed discussion with patients about the risks, benefits, and and absolute benefits of treatment. But are there any risks? I mean, as a patient, if you were slightly uncomfortable, presumably you might as well just go and buy it. It's not going to harm you in any way. Uh, I think that that's probably true most of the time. It uh, um, it's going to harm your pocket, obviously. Um, you have to take time out to go and get the treat the treatment. Yeah, and and any treatment is is not without some risk. Um, so uh, I think we need to be wary about saying, oh, it's not going to do any harm necessarily. Um, but for most people, yes, they're not going to come to harm from using the 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 uh, uh, using antibacterial drops. But uh, I suppose to make an informed decision, you've got to know that actually it might not do you much good either. Um, and and I, I'm not sure how well known um, the self the fact that it's self limiting usually is is you know if people knew that they might have a different take on 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 whether they actually do want to use antibacterial drops for it and um, often the, the the desire for treatment was driven by uh things like policies of nurseries and schools which yeah. required children uh they wouldn't be allowed to go to the school or the nursery or the ch- childcare unless if if they had a red eye or signs of conjunctivitis, unless they were receiving treatment. So despite the fact the treatment may not do very much, they weren't allowed in until they'd had this treatment, which may not benefit them greatly. So it kind of drove the, the, the practice. Whereas, you know, for, as we say, for a lot of people, it's self-limiting and will go away. Um, the second article in this month's issue is an update on a 1996 review of SLE. So what's, what's changed since the last one? Systemic lupus erythematosus, SLE. Uh, yes, we covered this several years ago, uh, which I think at the time, having having gone back and looked at the article, was, was kind of picking up on the significant changes that, that had occurred then, which improved uh, life expectancy for people with with SLE, which I guess we should just start by saying is, is a sort of, well, is not a sort of, it is a multi-system autoimmune disease um, affecting people. Uh, more often women than men, um, and affecting a range of, of organs within the body and causing a range of range of uh, symptoms and, and problems. So what we picked up in the original article was that a lot of the treatment benefit that had uh, developed since uh, over the previous 30, 40 years had improved the outcome for patients. So what we do with this one is really go back and look at 
some of the early stuff again and say, okay, the, this is how you would traditionally treat SLE. These are the drugs that are available for it. But we also bring it up to date with a few couple of new trials, looking at some of the more modern uh, drugs that have been tried for for SLE and review their place in therapy. A couple of the um, monoclonal antibody drugs that have been tested and just look at whether they're showing significant benefits. But a lot of it is is really highlighting the traditional treatments, what is it we would use um, and how the condition should be managed. And is it one that's quite difficult to manage because it can affect so many organs? You know, sometimes it's dealt with in primary care, otherwise it would have to go on to a rheumatologist. A lot of it is needs specialist supervision in order to make sure... I mean, the patients who are under control and, and are well, well managed can often be looked after in general practice. But I think for severe disease, unstable disease, complex um, times like pregnancy, you would want a specialist management approach. Yeah, definitely. Brilliant. Well, thank you. I think that's all for today. Um, if you have any comments on anything that we've discussed today or in our issue this month, please email us at dtbeditor at bmjgroup.com and check us out online, I guess you're already there, at dtb.bmj.com. All right, thanks a lot.